to the history of the Premier League. In brief, the Football League in England was formed in 1888, and the game quickly became professional. The league was extremely balanced in those days prior to the presence of huge sums of money, and success was generally quite hard to sustain. Though rich local businessmen with big egos came in and tried to buy the best players from their rivals, Manchester United did well in the 1950s and 60s with manager Matt Busby, but it was Liverpool Football Club in the 1970s and 80s that utterly dominated the league with legendary managers Bill Shankly and Bob Paisley. English teams also performed well in Europe in those days, which even include Nottingham Forest winning back-to-back European championships soon after they were promoted to the top division in England, then called the championship. Unfortunately, the 1980s saw the nadir of English football, underscored by the very tragic Hazel and Hillsborough disasters. Hooliganism was rife in the English game, and going to an away match as a traveling supporter back then was more akin to warfare than it was a family affair. This is the basis of the movie Green Street Hooligans, which is a very fictitious look at uh, some West Ham fans and their brawling in the streets. In the Hazel Stadium in Belgium, though, Liverpool fans were blamed by UEFA, the governing body of all of European soccer, for causing a stadium crush where 39 people were killed after being pressed against a collapsing wall with nowhere to run and nowhere to escape. The game was played less than an hour after the disaster, and Juventus beat Liverpool in the European Championship that year. Yes, they really did play a game after a bunch of people had been killed 30 feet away. As a result of this tragedy, UEFA banned all English clubs from participating in European competition for five years after the event. English football entered a sort of dark age, out of the spotlight of Europe's most prestigious competition. Tragically, Again, tragically, in 1989, failures by administrators and police led to the crushed deaths of 97 people at a game between Nottingham Forest and Liverpool. This is called the Hillsborough Disaster, and it's one of the most infamous events in British history where authorities blamed Liverpool fans for it. It was only 20 years later that the police admitted to gross negligence that led to the disaster, and the Hillsborough Independent Panel concluded that no Liverpool fans were responsible in any way for the disaster and that its main cause was a lack of police control. Aside from this dark age from a global and European perspective, this was also an era when many players were essentially functioning alcoholics. Players went to pubs and clubs and lived their lives as the celebrities that they were. Fortunately for them, there were no smartphones back then. England took pride in its blue-collar, hard-man culture where physicality and not being soft were the watchwords of the day. George Best, who was a great player for Manchester United back then, had a great quote, which I'll kind of translate to American English for you, but it basically said, I spent a lot of money on alcohol, girls, and fast cars. The rest I just wasted. And I think that pretty well sums up the mentality of a lot of what was going on in England back then. It was against this backdrop that the Premier League as we know it today was formed. It would revive English football, dragging it out of a decade of tragedy and disaster and usher in a new era that would radically alter everything in the English game, for better or for worse. August 1992, the club in England's top division in a bid to separate from the Football League and harness the soon-to-come globalization and commercialization of sports for their own benefit 
joined together and formed the Premier League. They would be separate from the rest of the leagues in England, meaning that they would not be forced to share the money from their TV deals across the world with the teams in the lower divisions. In the 1990s, Sir Alex Ferguson, a Scottish manager with a very difficult to understand accent and a fiery temper, who was known as Fergie, began the crusade to, as he put it, knock Liverpool off their fucking perch as England's most successful team. Eric Cantona was the final player that Fergie needed to push Manchester United over the top. In 1994-1995, a local businessman bought Blackburn Rovers and spent then crazy sums of money as high as three and a half million pounds, I mean, can you believe it, for one of England's greatest ever strikers, Alan Shearer. But a new era of Manchester United with a backbone of academy players including the Neville brothers, David Beckham, Nicky Butt, Paul Scholes, and Ryan Giggs showed that the Red Devils were here to stay and that the 1990s was to be their decade. They were the first ever English team to win the treble, winning the league, the Champions League, and the FA Cup all in one season in 1999. Manchester United won the Premier League in the Premier League's first season in 1992 and 1993, again in 1995-96-96-97-98-99-2000-2001-Cementing-Sir-Alex-Ferguson-is-one-of-the-greatest-to-ever-do-it-and-since-every-great-team-needs-a-rival-and-since-Blackburn-was-an-up-to-the-challenge
Patrick Vieira, one of the league's greatest midfielders, and Dennis Bergkamp changed the way the game was played and ushered in a new era for the Premier League. Arsenal and Manchester United for about eight years competed with each other for the title nearly every year in what most would consider the greatest rivalry of the Premier League era. This was the era in which the league exploded internationally and commercially. Images of Roy Keane, the legendary and extremely hot-headed Irish captain of Manchester United and Patrick Vieira, captain of Arsenal, fighting in the tunnel before games captured the imagination of the world. Despite Manchester United generally being more successful in this era, Arsenal will forever be remembered for their season in 2003-2004, when they were known as the Invincibles, as they went and became the first team since the 1800s to go through an entire season without ever losing a game in the Premier League. This era is a big reason why Manchester United and Arsenal are so well supported in the United States, as this is when it became slightly easier, though still difficult, to actually follow the Premier League in the U.S., Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo would soon join Manchester United and make it an even greater commercial juggernaut. But the dominance of the Reds in Manchester and London would not last. A new power, a dark power, funded by a Russian oligarch, was rising in West London. Chelsea Football Club and their new billionaire owner, Roman Abramovich, were about to alter the landscape of Premier League football once and for all and set it on the course of what it was to become today. In 2003, both Leeds United and Chelsea Football Club were facing financial crisis. Both clubs were at the top end of the Premier League, vying for Champions League qualification, but their futures were in the balance. This was a time when the Premier League was transforming from the old ownership model with people that had purchased clubs at a time when 50 millions bought you a lot. But the increasing amount of money in the game meant competition. Owners without deep pockets mortgaged their futures in the hopes of moving their clubs up the ladder and securing a place at the top end of the Premier League. But this placed teams on a knife's edge from a financial standpoint, and both Leeds and Chelsea were one or two bad seasons and one or two bad transfers away from calamity. Leeds had taken out large loans against sponsorship money and Champions League revenues, and when they failed to qualify for the Champions League by slim margins in two consecutive seasons, the loans came due and they had nothing in their accounts with which to repay them. And so they stripped the club of its assets and sold off any player they could get a decent fee for, including famously selling Rio Ferdinand, one of the greatest defenders in Premier League history, to arch-rival Manchester United in a humiliating and unforgivable act. Leeds United, one of the great teams in English football, well known for the rowdiness of their fans, for both good and bad, was relegated in 2004 and would not return to the Premier League for nearly two decades. Chelsea seemed destined for a similar fate. But in June 2003, Roman Abramovich, who had made his billions in the oligarchical chaos of post-Soviet Russia, as an aside, he was involved in oil and then the aluminum business, and he claimed about the aluminum business that every three days someone was murdered in that business and made it a little bit tough to get into and out of. Uh, but he ended up buying the club for 60 million pounds. The club at that time was 80 million pounds in debt, and Abramovich would quickly wipe away those debts and reverse the club's fortunes in what could only be described as a miracle for the Blues. He spent 120 million pounds in that transfer window that year, bringing to the club world-class talent and prospects and shattering all spending records in the league. 
As a whole, including ticket sales and TV revenue and merchandising and sponsors, Chelsea had made $109 million the year before, and Abramovich wiped away that $80 million of debt and then spent $120 million just for the right to pay players ever-increasing sizes of contracts. They brought players like Cloud Makaleli, described as the engine room in the midfield for the great Zidane Real Madrid teams. Hernan Crespo, Joe Cole, and Damian Duff also joined. They would finish second that year behind one of the great Arsenal teams, but Abramovich, in a sign of things to come, was not spending his billions to finish second. He was ruthless and demanding, and he fired Claudio Ranieri, remember the name, and paid the money to sign a manager who was considered at a young age one of the greatest managers in Europe, and a man who had the world at his feet. He was perhaps the greatest fit of a manager and club in history, aside from the fact that a guy named Arsene Wenger named, managed Arsenal. His name was Jose Mourinho, and unlike many managers who were famous former players, he had studied sports science in Portugal and worked his way up from the bottom of the ladder on merit rather than name recognition. He had won the Champions League with a Portuguese team, Porto, an incredible feat in 2004, and he sought to take his next step. He was fiery and innovative and arrogant and charismatic beyond belief, his slightly grammatically incorrect and direct English a perfect setup for awesome sound bites. In his introductory press conference, he announced himself, quote, not as one from the bottle, but a special one. The name stuck. Mourinho, a special one, would take England and the world by storm. Chelsea spent another $100 million in the transfer market after signing Mourinho, and they brought his rock and defense from Porto, Ricardo Calvalho, as well as Arjen Robin, a legendary left-footed winger. In combination with John Terry, a rugged, no-holds-barred defender from the academy who would have captained the side and be counted among the greatest captains and defenders in Premier League history, as well as Frank Lampard, a goal-scoring midfielder who would go down as their greatest ever scorer, Mourinho led Chelsea to the Premier League title, getting a record 95 points in 2004-2005, and losing only one league game all year with the greatest defense the league had ever seen. He had put Manchester United and Arsenal on notice and announced that Chelsea was now the dominant power in England. Of note, despite Liverpool not quite reaching the heights of these other three in this era of the Premier League, Liverpool won perhaps the most famous Champions League final in history in 2005, beating an AC Milan team littered with historical greats after being down 3-0 at halftime. That sort of comeback in such an important game has never been replicated, and Steven Gerrard, despite famously never being able to actually win the Premier League, would go down as one of the all-time great midfielders in English history, competing with Paul Scholes and Frank Lampard as the greatest to ever play the position in the Premier League era. Whereas Wenger and Ferguson were known for their attacking brands of football, especially Wenger, who enjoyed flair and all-out attack and possession, Chelsea under Mourinho were the perfected version of the traditionally English version of football. They were powerful and physical, not letting opponents breathe. They were the masters of the dark arts, diving for fouls. Of note, this is kind of when English fans and pundits blame this era for the increasing foreign influence as to when diving really came into the game in England. But of course, the English have taken to diving quite well uh, since then. But they were incredible at these dark arts of the game, as well as riling up opponents. They made games dirty and hard, 
and nasty and made it impossible to play against them. They turned Stamford Bridge, their home, into a fortress. And rather than keep possession like Barcelona or Arsenal, Mourinho famously didn't want the ball. He always said that having the ball only meant that you were the one that had the opportunity to make a mistake. And they defended as a well-structured phalanx and took advantage of every mistake the opponent would make. This was a mastery of defensive football, and they had the talent up front to score goals without ever opening themselves up for attack. Chelsea would go on to continue to outspend the rest of the league, and they again won the title in 2005-2006, but with Abramovich and Mourinho, each with incredible egos, like literally the biggest egos, drama and friction were bound to come. After a single season not winning the Premier League, losing to Ferguson's United, Mourinho would leave by mutual consent early in the 2007-2008 season. Chelsea had replaced Arsenal as Manchester United's greatest rival. And the two great teams would meet in the Champions League final in 2007-2008, despite Mourinho's departure. Manchester United reformed and went into one of the greatest teams in history, led by Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney, Edwin van der Sar, Rio Ferdinand, Nemanja Vidic, and Carlos Tevez, as well as the veteran presence and ever-present natures of Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs, still around from the mid-90s, would vanquish Chelsea in a penalty shootout in Abramovich's home country to claim the Premier League and Champions League titles. The next few years would see Manchester United as the dominant team again, winning the Premier League in 08-09 and 10-11, with Chelsea winning the title in between. Manchester United would make two more Champions League finals, seeking to cement themselves as Ferguson's greatest ever side. But unfortunately, their opponents in those two finals had the greatest player of all time, and a man who was making his name as one of the greatest managers of all time. Lionel Messi, very famous from playing at uh, Inter Miami, at the peak of his powers, was unstoppable. And players like Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, now also in Inter Miami with Messi, Puyol and Piquet would form the backbone of perhaps the greatest club team to ever exist in any country in any era. They were led by a manager from Catalonia, himself an incredible defensive midfielder in a past life, and now a manager who in time would eventually change the face of the Premier League. Pep Guardiola, an eccentric, cerebral manager in counter to Mourinho, believed in possession, in possession, and then a little bit more possession. This gave his teams the ability to suffocate the life out of the opposition. Whereas Mourinho had perfected defensive counterattacking, Pep perfected tiki-taka, a style of short passing and control that made his teams into a boa constrictor. Combined with the magic of Messi, this made them nearly impossible to stop, and they would beat Manchester United in two separate Champions League finals. Pep was to take positional play. The idea that players would be taught the ideal places to take up on the pitch and that attacking patterns would be rehearsed and practiced to its absolute pinnacle and create monstrously efficient teams that would dominate European football for two, nearly two decades. Though sort of calm had settled over the Premier League as Chelsea went from upstart to establishment, Chelsea had opened the floodgates and proven that coming in and spending outrageous sums of money was the pathway to success. Manchester City, for most of its history, was known as the second club in Manchester behind their famous rivals Manchester United. They were the little brothers, in the shadows of the Reds across town for most of their history. 
They were well supported in the city itself, playing in their famous sky blue kits. They had some success in the 60s and 70s, but they were relegated to the third tier of English football in 1998, just a year before their hated rivals would win the treble. This was the low point for Manchester City, but they fought their way back up and rejoined the Premier League in 2002. And in August 2008, about five years after Abramovich took over Chelsea, Manchester City was purchased by the Abu Dhabi United Group, run by Sheikh Mansour, a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family and minister of presidential affairs. For all intents and purposes, Manchester City had been bought by a man who represented a sovereign nation with a trillion dollars in their family's coffers. Their billions were unlimited, and the millions that you had to spend for a player was pocket change. Overnight, Manchester City, a locally popular but middling club, had been transformed, and it would begin its ascent up the mountain of European football backed by the money of their new owners. This began the era of strong influence of money from the Middle East and European football and the era of what is called sports washing, where these owners are accused of trying to improve their branded PR by building famous and incredible football teams. City spent huge money for Robinho, who, and this is probably apocryphal, but still funny, had thought he was signing for Ferguson's United when his agents told him that he was going to Manchester. And signing Robinho from Real Madrid was an incredible coup for a mid-table team. They would also make a signing of a strong, cultured centre-back from Belgium named Vincent Company, who would grow with the team and quickly become captain. But as the league had grown competitively, the results were not as instant as they had been for Chelsea. Manchester City finished 10th, but rather than deter Sheikh Mansour, this only spurred him on. They spent over $100 million on players from the rest of the Premier League, signing players from teams above them in the table. They brought in Gareth Barry, who would go on to make the most appearances in Premier League history, Roque Santa Cruz, Carlos Tevez, who famously was playing on Manchester United just before this. Manchester City put up a huge billboard that said, Welcome to Manchester in the city center with Tevez dressed in blue, which was very famously caused a lot of issues between the teams back then. Tevez would ascend to new levels, and lead the team to a fifth-place finish, narrowly missing out on the Champions League. They had not yet conquered the world, but they were outside the gates of Rome. Ferguson would call City the noisy neighbors, but they were about to burst through the wall like the damn Kool-Aid man. Whereas before, they had had to overspend for decent, but overall Tier 2 players. The growth of the project meant that a new tier of player was now available to them. They signed Kunaguero. Sergio Guerrero, but known as Kuhn, based, I think, on some anime, which is just a great name, who was a truly incredible and dynamic player and a striker and one of Lionel Messi's best friends, and David Silva, one of the best playmakers to ever live. They also signed Yaya Torre. They also had his brother, Colo Torre, and the song that City fans sang for Yaya and Colo is just incredible. Well, I'll, I'll do it for you quickly. Yeah, 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 Torre Colo, 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 Torre, yeah, yeah. All right, you get the point. But anyway, sorry I had to subject you to that. But in 2010 and 2011, City would qualify for the Champions League for the first time since 1968, as well as win the FA Cup, bringing home a trophy to the club. In the next season, they would embark on perhaps the most memorable league campaign in Premier League history. 
On May 13th, 2012, the final day of the season, Manchester City and Manchester United were level on 86 points at the top of the Premier League, with City having the superior goal difference, which is the main tiebreaker. This meant that if City won their final game, they would become champions. But if United bettered their result, City would lose once again to their longtime big brother. Manchester United played Sunderland and saw them off relatively easily, winning the game. Manchester City played QPR, or Queen's Park Rangers, who were fighting to avoid relegation. At the time that the 90 minutes were up, QPR was leading 2-1. Five minutes of added time were the only thing that stood between Ferguson and another league title. City won a corner kick in the second minute of added time, and David Silva centered the ball to Ed Dzeko, who headed it in to equalize. 2-2, three minutes to play. And then, with one minute left to go, City, desperate for a miracle, Sergio Aguero twisted past the defense and rifled a thunderbolt into the net with Martin Tyler, the Premier League's equivalent of Al Michaels, screaming, Aguero! With his 70-year-old voice cracking as Manchester City rounded off the most dramatic final day in Premier League history. City had won the league within four years of the takeover, and they were the noisy neighbors no more. The next year would see Ferguson sign Robin Van Persie, the best striker in the league, from Arsenal, and come back to win the league and avenge their loss the season before. But he would retire after the 12-13 season as perhaps the greatest manager in history, having managed Manchester United since 1986, having won 13 Premier League titles, five FA Cups, two UEFA Champions Leagues, and turned Manchester United into perhaps the biggest club in the entire world. A new era, a post-Ferguson era, was about to start in the Premier League. Manchester United would never be the same after losing their great manager, having not won the Premier League in the decade since. Ferguson's departure meant that the Premier League was up for grabs again, and Liverpool so nearly won their first title in over 20 years in 2013-2014 when Luis Suarez and Steven Gerrard led the team to great heights, just falling short to Manchester City. Chelsea, until a return to Jose Mourinho, who had famously managed at Real Madrid and became arch-rivals with Pep Guardiola at a time when the Real Madrid-Barcelona rivalry was at its peak with Cristiano Ronaldo at Madrid and Messi at Barcelona. But Chelsea would win in 14-15 before the Mourinho-Abramovich relationship would once again almost immediately crumble. The 15-16 season is perhaps the most famous in Premier League history. Now, try to imagine the most improbable events in sports history. Perhaps a comeback in March Madness, a boxing upset, or a crazy playoff run from the New York Giants against the 2007 Patriots. With almost all of these events, one or two moments changed history. But in the Premier League, when the winning team isn't decided in the playoffs, season-long miracles are much harder to conjure and much harder to sustain. Conventional wisdom tells us that money spent is probably the biggest factor in terms of where you end up at the end of the Premier League season, and Leicester City, with odds of 5,000 to 1, defied all theory and analysis and money spent and won the league for the first time in their history. Imagine what it was like before and after that season. The season before, after 29 games, Leicester had 19 points and were almost guaranteed for relegation. No one in their position that year, with nine games left, had ever escaped in the history of the league. Somehow, some way, they won seven out of their next nine games and they stayed up. 
Now think about what people thought about that team going into 15 and 16. Drama in the offseason somehow meant that they also fired their manager. That made them barely survive the year before, and they turned to a soft-spoken Italian, Claudio Ranieri. Remember him? He's the manager that Abramovich sacked back in 2004 so that he could bring in Jose Mourinho. He was back, but Leicester were thought to be a team for fighting for relegation, not the league. They were led by Jamie Vardy, the most blue-collar of blue-collar guys that you could think of, who had never been all that skilled but was devastating as a finisher and worked harder than everyone else on the pitch. He may never have made it to the Premier League if he had not been promoted with Leicester, but he came up, and along with Riyad Mahrez... They dominated teams. Their defense was incredibly stout, and the magic of Vardy and Mares up top was enough for them to squeeze out 1-0 win after 1-0 win. They won the league, and Ranieri had his friend Andrea Bocelli sing to the stadium after their victory in a bizarro world series of events. Nothing like it had ever happened before, and nothing like it may ever happen again. All of the teams... Had bad seasons that year, but Leicester took advantage. The magic of that season may never be replicated. This era also saw the rise of Tottenham. Arsenal's fiercest rival joined the ranks at the top of the Premier League. Under Mauricio Pochettino and with the help of Gareth Bale and then Harry Kane, they would join the other big boys at the top of the league. The last five years of the Premier League has been defined by the two greatest managers in the world. Pep Guardiola. After a brief trip to Germany with Bayern Munich, joined Manchester City in 2016. After a so-so first season, he brought in an incredible group of players, headlined by Kevin De Bruyne, a deadly baby-faced Belgium guy who Chelsea had written off, Bernardo Silva, and much later, Erling Haaland, who's perhaps the best player in the world. Along with the Sheik's cash, he turned Manchester City into the most ruthless attacking side the league had ever seen. They dominate every game, and every game is essentially just waiting while City passes the ball around in front of you until they find an opportunity and make the most of it. They are what happens when you take the greatest manager in the world, combine it with billions in oil money, and combine that with the most intelligent and forward-thinking football director in Europe, and basically put them on a team. The only way I can really describe them is that they're the Golden State Warriors with Kevin Durant signing a five-year contract or the Patriots if they just played with their 2007 team every single season. They've won five out of the last six Premier League titles and would have made a complete mockery of the league if it were not for one man, Jurgen Klopp, a German guy, quick to anger, who always wears a hat, but who is the perfect manager for his team, Liverpool. He is everything that Guardiola is not. Guardiola is a thinking man who analyzes every possibility and creates plans to the, down to the exquisite details. He has automated this city team so that they are a ruthless, efficient, perfect machine. They are the Terminators. Guardiola is a conductor of a symphony with every instrument contributing perfectly in harmony. Klopp, on the other hand, as he famously once stated, is more of a fan of heavy metal. When it seemed impossible to counter Guardiola's metronomic passing, Klopp brought with him the German idea of gegenpressing. This uber-intense German style of swarming the opposition defenders when they had the ball was physically demanding, physically thrilling, and really just tiring. 
but he had his team in incredible shape, and his players attacked without the ball, sprinting at the opposition and surrounding them and bullying them until they made a mistake. Mistakes made high up the field, i.e. by your own defenders, are the most costly because you're obviously near your own net, and Liverpool became the most high-flying team in the league. With players like Virgil van Dijk, a cultured Dutch centre-back who is equally imposing and skilled, and Allison, perhaps the best goalkeeper in the world, as well as the lethal combination of Mo Salah, who's another player that Chelsea let go. Note that this was always a problem with Mourinho. He never wanted to play the youth. Uh, Mourinho also did go to Manchester United around this time. Things did not end well there. He went to Tottenham. Things also, again, didn't end well there. Uh, But anyway, back to Liverpool. They had Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, who would deliver Liverpool back to the promised land. Aside from the Champions League in 2005, you haven't heard me mention Liverpool much during this talk. Despite being perhaps the biggest club in England for much of its history and dominating the 70s and 80s, they had not won the Premier League title ever since its inception in the 90s. Despite having some of the league's best ever players in that period, most notably Steven Gerrard, a homegrown guy, Fernando Torres, and Luis Suarez. They had always been around kind of that third to eighth place, but they had been in what people kind of call a banter era, which is where... Basically, the team is so bad that other teams just make fun of them. United and Arsenal have each had their own banter eras right recently, and you could argue they're still in them. Um, Pretty much because the rise of billionaire owners means someone had to lose out. But Liverpool's fans are probably known as the most passionate in England, singing their famous You'll Never Walk Alone song in unison before every home game. It really is a sight to behold, especially before any big game where the crowd are really up for it. And so, Jurgen Klopp coming in and doing what he did, getting Liverpool out of their nadir, has made him the messiah on Merseyside. He won the league with Liverpool in 2019 and 2020 for the first time since 1990. And he went back-to-back in Champions League finals, losing the first against Real Madrid in 2018 and then winning against Tottenham Hotspur in 2019. They would once again return to the Champions League final in 2022, where they would lose to Real Madrid again. In the same season in 22, they would lose the Premier League to Manchester City by only one point for the second time in four seasons. After nearly winning the treble, something that United fans have long held over their rivals, Liverpool had fallen short for their own treble hunt. In 2022-23, the addition of Erling Haaland made Manchester City, despite a revival from Arsenal under Guardiola's protege Mikel Arteta, able to conquer all of Europe, the only black mark on Guardiola's reign. They would replicate Manchester United's treble, winning the Premier League, the Champions League, and the FA Cup all in the same season. They even beat Manchester United in the FA Cup final to add insult to injury. Despite having enormous success and very famously going down as one of the greatest managers of all time. Without Manchester City and Real Madrid, Klopp's Liverpool may have gone down as England's greatest ever team. But alas, Manchester City were here to stay. And as things stand, City has eclipsed all of their competition and are widely considered the best team in the world. They seem unstoppable with the addition of Erling Haaland, who scores for fun, and they are favored to win every competition they are in in this season. Arsenal and United are hoping that their managers, Arteta and Ten Hag, will do what Klopp did for Liverpool and lead them out of their banter eras. 
Liverpool, on the other hand, are hoping to regroup under Klopp and regain their status as the most exciting team in England. Chelsea, having had a terrible season, like truly, truly terrible, now under American ownership, Roman Abramovich was forced to sell basically at the onset of the Ukrainian-Russian war, uh, but now they're owned by Todd Bowley, who also owns the Dodgers. But Chelsea are taking on a new model of buying young players and are hoping that the end of Russians of the Russians' reign doesn't mean that they themselves are entering a down decade. Tottenham, somewhat known as the little brother of the top teams in England, with a fancy new stadium that will bring in new commercial revenues, including NFL revenue, as they serve as the frequent host for multiple NFL games in London every year, is hoping to regroup themselves and go for their first ever Premier League title. You will notice, if you're a careful listener, that I only mentioned three teams that finished in the top four last year. City, Arsenal, and Manchester United. Obviously, there's a fourth, if it's the top four. But a new power, funded by the sovereign state of Saudi Arabia, has emerged from the doldrums of awful ownership, financial crisis, and mediocrity. Sound familiar? They will hope to do what Chelsea and City did before them and turn themselves into a major power. Though this is made slightly harder by spending limits such as FFP, which is called financial fair play, that basically the big teams in Europe put in place so that no billionaire could kind of come in and easily do a City or Chelsea in the same way. Of note, City has over 100 charges against them that they've broken these financial rules. But either way, a new power rising in the north of England, a historical blue-collar area with an incredible fan base, Newcastle United, on Tyneside, are hoping to replicate the success of Chelsea and Manchester City before them. The Premier League is as exciting as ever. There are a group of big seven teams, kind of historically we always called things the top four when there are really four you know, very big teams. Now there's kind of seven of these teams, which is City, United, Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, Liverpool, and now Newcastle United. But each of those seven teams each expect to make the top four every year. You should know that the top four, which is incredibly important because it gives you Champions League places, is now likely going to be the top five. But this pressure to make the top four or top five means that teams have no patience anymore. Managers last about two seasons before they're often unceremoniously discarded, usually with a multi-million dollar payoff. But failing to make the Champions League places means less money, and that means that Europe's best talents may not want to play for you, both of which can combine to send your club into a death spiral. And this is where we are today. You joined... At a perfect time. The Premier League is as exciting as it's ever been. History is being made and legacies are on the line. And every win and loss means that your manager careens from exalted to hated. Welcome to the 2023-2024 Premier League season.